Hi folks, this is Christian Hagen, your host. Uh, thank you for downloading this episode of Contextual Deviance, our mini-episode uh, between uh, Ex Machina and the next film that we will be doing. Stay tuned till the end of this episode where I reveal what that next movie will be, uh, as well as an explanation for... Well, you'll see. It's a bit weird. But... Uh, in the meantime, uh, I hope you uh, enjoy this episode. It's a little bit mm, potentially controversial, but I mean well. Please don't be mad at me. Uh, and uh, let me know what you think. Uh, there's probably going to be some discussion around this episode, and I uh, I hope to hear from uh, from anyone who has anything to say. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy. When it comes to superhero movies, there's something we're not talking about. Movie viewers, myself included, have been enamored in recent years by superheroes. Superheroes are the new westerns. There was a period in film history during which a huge volume of the movies released and viewed in American cinemas were centered around cowboys and Indians, settlers and sheriffs. Over time, popular tastes shifted, but today the western has become a little seen and rarely profitable niche in Hollywood. Time will tell if superheroes will wind up the same way, but let's be honest, the odds are fair. No genre as narrowly defined as the superhero film can survive as the dominant force forever. Sure, there will probably always be a place for superheroes in American cinemas, but it's unlikely that the sheer financial supremacy of the cape and cowl films will last forever. But what will ultimately be the downfall of these superpowered pictures? Maybe oversaturation of the market, maybe a lack of new ideas. Maybe the continuities will get so unwieldy that they'll split dedicated viewers into smaller and smaller segments of their audience until there aren't enough people who can follow everything to reliably show up to the theater. It'll probably be some combination of factors, but one potential crack in the superhero ceiling could be spreading, and it might be time that we acknowledged it as a society. Are superhero movies too violent? Now, before you write me an angry email about studies, about violent media not having a significant effect on children, or about how you watched violent things as a kid and you turned out fine, I'm not talking about children here. At least not children specifically. I'm not even talking about any sort of perceived effect that movies might have on a viewer. I don't know if watching something violent would make someone more primed for violence. I don't want to get into that argument here. I'm talking about the critical framework by which we're viewing film as an art form. Our show posits the idea that good criticism only needs two things, a context and an analysis within that context. You could look for and identify new and subversive ideas in a story and decode them for the audience. You could carefully explore the technical care that goes into a film's production and find areas where the crew might have missed the mark. You could look for symbolism in a story which might align with something in our current political moment and relay the message to a viewer. When it comes to superhero movies, I and many other people have used every one of these angles and many more to examine and consider what these films might be saying. And if we're going to continue looking at movies this way as pieces of art that are saying something, regardless of the effect that that message might have, we need to consider the whole picture as a part of that narrative. But we rarely talk about the central expression of conflict in almost all superhero films, the most consistent method by which these movies convey struggle and disagreement. Violence. 
Let's use a film we've featured on our podcast as an example. In Thor Ragnarok, the title character is cast out from his homeland and winds up in a world of chaos and discarded debris. There he is kidnapped and forced into gladiatorial combat made to fight in front of throngs of cheering spectators. Now up to this point in the story, the only real violence we've seen from the main character has been against a horde of demonic beasts who were keeping Thor imprisoned in the movie's cold open, and a brief but futile attempt to fight his evil sister Hela before being sucked into the Bifrost and hurled into space. And yes, this is one of those instances where describing a movie's plot sounds way more ridiculous than actually watching it, you're just going to have to suck it up. And for a long stretch in the heart of Thor Ragnarok, Thor does not engage in physical violence. He tries to reason with the Hulk and with Valkyrie and with Loki into helping him escape, and somewhat minorly stokes plans for a revolution amongst the other enslaved combatants in the arena. Meanwhile, Hela, the film's main antagonist, is incredibly cruel, viciously slicing and stabbing her way through countless citizens of Asgard in an attempt to regain the power she once held as the daughter of the king. She engages in indiscriminate slaughter, and reveals her plan to gather an army of undead warriors to lay siege across several worlds so that she can conquer and rule them. If we're looking at the narrative of violence in Thor Ragnarok, for the first two-thirds of the movie's runtime, violence is shown to be a potential necessity to escape captivity, an unwanted burden forced on unwilling prisoners, and a brutal tactic of domination and evil which the audience is supposed to abhor. And then we get to the climax. Thor convinces his friends to break free, inciting a bloody revolution. Thor and Loki, armed with guns, mow down enemies en masse. Then the heroes return to Asgard, loaded up with weapons and armor, ready to take back Thor's home and kill the evil Hela. The day is ultimately saved when Thor brings about Ragnarok, the end of Asgard, destroying his homeworld and Hela along with it. What is the story telling us here? Violence as an abstract concept has been shown to be evil, though sometimes necessary. But now, it's not only necessary to solve the conflict of the film, it's thrilling, scored by loud rock music, lit by bright colors, occasionally broken up with quips and comedic takes. It's fun, it's a good time. And again, I'm not saying that this is inherently wrong, or impactful in any way beyond in the story itself, but I think it's fair to say that Thor Ragnarok is telling the audience that violence is a good and useful tool, even if it feels instinctively wrong to say that that's what the movie is saying. And that feeling of wrongness, the desire to paper over the potentially difficult message buried in this otherwise lighthearted blockbuster is a problem we've yet to reckon with as a viewing public. And Thor Ragnarok is a relatively mild example. In movies like Captain America Civil War, or The Avengers Age of Ultron, or Wonder Woman, or Justice League, violence is not only presented as a necessity, but it's presented as an inevitability. There's never a question of whether or not someone will get into a fistfight in these movies, or that someone will be killed, or that there will be massive collateral damage to untold numbers of people. We know before the movie even starts that these things are a part of the genre, and we're therefore totally unsurprised when these things happen. What makes it even more conflicting of a message is that this inevitable violence is almost always presented as a resolution for peace. The good guys will fight hard enough that the bad guys will die or be incapacitated, and then the conflict will be over. Victory is won by physical domination first and foremost. This isn't even to mention that this violent conflict is considered inevitable in large part due to a superhero movie's traditional good versus evil dichotomy. 
if there's an identifiable good guy and bad guy, there can be no peaceful resolution because their ideologies are too diametrically opposed to ever compromise. As soon as we declare one side is purely good and the other side is purely evil, violence becomes a foregone conclusion. Because of this, violent conflict in superhero movies has gone beyond a cliché or a trope. It's part of the definition of a superhero movie, and I'm not sure that it has to be. This idea can be and has been subverted. For example, while there is some violence in Doctor Strange, there are two notable instances in which that violence is treated differently than in other superhero stories. First, when Doctor Strange kills an enemy for the first time, he is so rattled by the experience that he intends to walk away from the conflict for good. Second, the final conflict with the evil entity Dormammu, who is defeated not through force, but rather through trickery and bargaining. Note that Doctor Strange doesn't kill the villain. Instead, he convinces the god that the villain worships to take the villain and his followers into his dark dimension, where Strange knows that they will not find the happiness and eternal peace that they believe will come to them. This sort of solution is a bit more common in comics, where the sheer volume of stories and characters means that punching the problem to death simply gets old a lot quicker. But could this violence fatigue make its way into the crowds for big budget superhero movies? Then again, does it need to? After all, even though I'm keenly aware of the prevalence of violence in superhero films and abhor violence in real life, I still watch every superhero movie that comes out. I own several Marvel movies on Blu-ray. We're probably going to cover more of these movies on the podcast as we continue. But I want to highlight one story that we should remember all too well. On July 20th, 2012, at a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises, one of the most hotly anticipated superhero movies of all time, a man stormed into a movie theater with guns and grenades. When his rampage was finally over, he'd killed 12 people and injured 70. This horrific mass murder led to a tremendous outpouring of grief and anger across the country. It frightened some people away from the theater, at least for a while. And all this happened during a film which features multiple shootouts, terrorist bombings, brutal murders, and vicious acts of cruelty in the streets of a major city. To be clear, the violence on screen did not reflect the violence in that theater. But shouldn't it? At some point, when the fictionalized and sanitized violence of our movies becomes so banal that we don't even talk about it, is that lack of realism a detriment to our cultural narrative of violence as a solution to conflict? When a man is bloodlessly shot to death on a 50-foot screen while dozens of innocent victims are slaughtered below in the real world, are we sanitizing the world to the point that our art loses its relevance? I don't know. I really enjoy superhero movies and I don't mind on-screen violence, but I think we should talk more about the ways that violence in our movies fails to reflect violence in our world. We should make a point to examine what the violence in these movies might mean, at least in the abstract. Does a fight scene have symbolic significance? Were there other ways to resolve a story than to have one character kill another? Should we question the heroism of people who value weapons over words? I mean, at least if we talk about these things a bit more, the context we place around our most popular cinematic genre might be able to do some real good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Contextual Deviance. As usual, uh, and I put usual in quotes because I'm very lax about getting these deviations out in a regular schedule, and I apologize for that. 
But I'm here to announce what our next film will be, and I guarantee you, you will have absolutely no chance of guessing what it is, uh, because it is a movie that I'm sure that the majority of the people listening to this have, uh, if they've heard of it, probably haven't seen, and if they've seen it, would not expect a podcast like ours to take it on. The movie we're going to be discussing next week is Fateful Findings. Uh, 2014 film by an independent director named Neil Breen, uh, widely considered by many, including myself on the internet, to be the best worst movie ever made. Uh, I am a huge fan of watching good bad movies. Uh, I have a lot of fun with it and have for years. And I know we're not a bad movie podcast, which is why I sort of shied away from doing a movie like Fateful Findings before, but I feel like we've established ourselves enough now that maybe it might be fun to do one, at least the big one. Now, here's the problem. When we started watching Fateful Findings again as a group, I realized partway through that while I had purchased the film on Amazon and thus had access to stream it through that service, the film has been pulled from Amazon Prime, where it was for a long time, and also has been pulled from all rental sites, and in fact is now only available by purchasing the DVD directly from the director's website. So we're in kind of an awkward position with this one because obviously if people can't watch the movie, it might be harder for them to enjoy the episode. However, uh, I've done some digging. There are plenty of clips on YouTube that you can watch just to get an idea of the movie. The movie's plot is so incomprehensible for the most part that I guarantee you that us talking about it will not, uh, will not harm in any way your ability to understand what we're talking about if you're confused when we talk about a plot point in the episode i i promise you you are not missing anything the movie is just that confusing uh it's also just incredibly badly made and the acting and writing is just absurd and um uh, we had a lot of fun recording an episode about it, and so I'm planning on releasing the episode anyway, despite the lack of availability of the film. Um, there is, I saw on YouTube, someone did like a fan cut of the movie that's about half an hour, even though the movie's about an hour and a half. Uh, so you're going to lose some scenes, but it, it, it keeps some of the real highlights. And, you know, we'll do, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do my best to uh, put together a brief synopsis of it before I release the full episode of Fateful Findings next week. But um, just wanted to let everyone know what we're going to be talking about. And if you are so inclined to see what all the hype is about around this movie, because I guarantee you've never seen anything quite like it, um, it's... uh, it, there are examples of it on YouTube. We've got a very special guest uh, in the next ep- in the Fateful Findings episode, and I'm very excited for everyone to be able to hear that. And uh, yeah, so uh, thank you again for listening. We will see you next week for Fateful Findings.